Quantum Computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today, we welcome George Mallet, a sports writer and author of a new book, Potter, Hopkiss, and a Desk in East London. And today is all about the first part of the title, Potter, as in former Premier League manager, Graham Potter. As part of writing his book, George took an in-depth look at Graham Potter's rather unusual journey from former professional footballer to cutting his teeth in management in the lower leagues of Sweden before eventually becoming manager of Brighton and then most recently Chelsea. George gives us a remarkable behind-the-scenes look at the decisions, experiences and strategies that shape Potter's career. We look at what we can learn from his people management, leadership philosophy, how he built a team, his approach to managing risk, and we pinpoint what has allowed him to achieve repeated and sustained success at almost all of the clubs he's managed. Plus, we look at what went wrong for him at Chelsea. It was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive straight in. Where I'd like to start is sports writing. So you're now an established sports writer, but when and how did you first get the, the bug for sports writing? Yeah, so I've already always done sort of writing in different capacities. I used to write for finance articles for finance magazines, and I've always personally been quite involved in sport. My my sports are sort of football and athletics, and I'll be honest, sports writing really got started by this book. I started writing this in 2018, just basically a series of notes that I wrote on my phone, and just because I thought the story that we had as a a bunch of friends myself and James, the other sort of main character in the book, was just quite funny and quite an interesting series of events. And I thought, actually, I quite like writing. Why don't I just see where this goes? And so I didn't really set out to write a book, but I found the process of writing this book so uh, interesting and exciting. I I just, it was such a breath of fresh air from my, my previous job, which was, I was um, an insurance broker for sort of six years in the city. Uh, I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the, the social element of it all, but it wasn't something that kind of every sort of waking moment I, I had that drive. And I kind of found that as I was writing this book, I was getting so, so passionate about what I was writing. I was getting so interested. And I just thought I'd love to have a job that I got this every day. And I also felt I'd be so much better at my job if I did this every day. And I think you'd probably agree if you're passionate about something, you just reach levels that you much higher levels than if you sort of go steadily along. So I, I wrote this book and then it just made me want to write more and more. So I started writing for World Athletics, for a few sort of professional running teams, uh, local papers and diff- different sports, athletics, boxing, football. And then just decided in 2021, I wanted to move away from just doing freelance writing on the side to make a career and just dive into something fully and now for context I, I work for a production company and make sports documentaries and right. I help write the scripts for those so it's yeah it started generally with this book which um is why I'm it's you know it was such a passion project for me yeah so great I guess you also you don't know if you're going to enjoy something until you try it so I guess you fell into it but then it turns out this is what you love doing so what a fantastic yeah kind of realization and um you know, you, the book you mentioned, obviously, it's called Potter, Popcut, and a Desk in East London. And anybody who doesn't know the Potter mentioned in the title is Graham Potter, who was until recently the, the manager of Chelsea Football Club and has been a, a manager at uh, Brighton Premier League Club as well. 
Why, why did you choose to focus a lot of your book on, on Graham Potter? What kind of made him stood out for, stand out for you? Yeah, so I would say I was, you know, I was really intrigued by the performance element of it or you know, a fascinating story, but we kind of actually really more stumbled into it. So when I was a lot, well, when I was sort of a teenager, the, the local paper was called the York Press. I'm from York originally. And on the back page, there'd always be a small little section devoted to an ex-York player that's doing well in a higher league. And one of those happened to be Graham Potter. Right. Um, and another one of them is a guy called Jamie Hopcutt, who is Potter Hopcutt and a desk in East London. Uh, so I kind of stumbled. We kept on hearing the story of Östersunds, which was a, a team in the in the fourth division in Sweden. And this isn't the fourth division in the UK where, you know, that's um, league... Uh, yeah, League Two. Right. Uh, yeah, fourth tier is League Two. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which boggles my brain. But yeah, it's um. So that would be fully professional in in Sweden. That is fully amateur. That is a completely different level. Uh, and we heard this rise of them getting higher and higher towards the Swedish top division, and then eventually got to a point where me and my, J- my friend James wanted to go and find out a little bit more about Östersunds, and we we grow we grew to hear the story of. Potter's route into management, uh, his never getting a chance at any professional club in the UK, and eventually his taking a massive gamble. Um, at the time, his wife was the breadwinner in the family. She had a very successful right. hairdressing right. business. He had a very young family, and he decided to take a chance and move to Sweden uh, and take a chance on this fourth tier side. And Obviously, the rest is history. And the other day, when he left the Chelsea job, he got what twenty-one million pound payout. It's obviously worked out well in the long run. But at that point in time, where uh, where Potter took that gamble, and he could have never, never foresee foresaw where it was going to end up. Uh, but yeah, that's I got into it basically as a as a byproduct of small little articles on the Hewitt Press. Yeah, interesting. No, that's great. And so I guess a couple of things you bring up there with Graham Potter. First of all, was he already working in? Before he moved to Sweden, was he already working as a football coach here in the UK? Yeah. So prior to sort of retiring professional football, he he took his coaching badges and no no club was interested in giving him sort of a coaching position. I'm not talking like a management position, but a coaching position in sort of a, a league team or anything higher than that. So he actually did what a lot of ex-football people do and he sort of turned to education so you see some ex-football pros become like school coaches he was kind of the next level up and ended up coaching at whole university so coaching university side he moved to Leeds Becker Leeds Met as it was at the time and I think this is where it was kind of a real sliding doors moment because Mm -hmm. at Leeds Becker there's a real focus on high performance not necessarily in football uh, but in a, a number of different sports. So at Leeds Beckett, there's a guy called Malcolm Brown, who is Alistair Brownlee and Johnny Brownlee's former coach and had a, a manager at British Triathlon. They're runners, aren't they? Yeah, they're runners. They're the Alistair won Olympic gold in 2012. And right. Johnny did as well in 2020. Uh, and then you've got Colin Stevens, who's a former Welsh rugby league fly half, who was heading up the rugby league team. And you have a, a lady called Anna Carter, who was an ex who who was heading up the Yorkshire Jets. So there was this real high performance culture at Leeds Beckett, which Potter credits nowadays as immersing himself into different perspectives on leadership. Mm. So he kind of used them as a sponge for learning how to cope with 
elite level athletes how to empathize with people uh, and 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 then also on the side working as a coach practically and coaching these university students but potter was never ever the, the years that the more years that passed him doing that the less likely it was that he would ever get right. a managerial position at a good club but then it just so happened that he did his coaching badges with a guy called graham jones who is quite linked with Swansea City. Uh-huh. And Swansea City had a bit of a relationship with a guy called Daniel Kinberg, who is the chairman or was the chairman of Ustersons. Right. So this meeting that Graham Potter had with Graham Jones, just from working with him on a coaching course, ends up with Jones recommending uh, Potter to Ustersons and Daniel Kinberg. They had a meeting. They, they liked what they heard. They were willing to take a gamble. And to be honest, they were in the fourth tier of Swedish football. Yeah. So they couldn't get much higher uh, caliber of coaches. And yeah, the rest is kind of history. He took that that gamble and, and in 2011 moved over to Sweden to try and see what he could do with this this Swedish team. Great. Well, there's a couple of things. I used to, so one is, it sounds like he had quite a lot of influence from other sports because a lot of footballers who become going to management or coaching, they just are literally immersed in football. So it was interesting that he had influence from, yeah, running or kind of athletics, as well as the uh, yeah, other kind of sports. I imagine there's lots of overlaps, but it must be an interesting perspective to then bring that coaching influence or coaching technique strategies to football. So maybe that kind of gave him an extra kind of string to his bow. But yeah, the, the whole move to Sweden, it is a risk, isn't it? It really is a kind of risk which... It struck me from what I know about Graham Potter that he, at that point, do you think he already had a vision that this was going to lead to half back to English? Was, was he already clear he wanted to manage in English football and this was part he sort of doing that or he just took it and really didn't know what was going to happen? But it's interesting his just approach to risk and I wonder what we can learn from that because a lot of people consider this maybe themselves risk averse. So where he seems to have, have a different kind of philosophy on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I think he'll have gone to Sweden as a, a means to start a career as a football manager. Right. I Realistically, starting in the fourth tier of Swedish football, he can never have really anticipated or he, he could have had the most amount of self-confidence, but he couldn't have predicted that he would become a Premier League coach. It just, it's, it, it would have been naive, it would have been arrogant to, to do that, but he, um, he clearly did have that self-belief in, in his talents and his yeah. abilities. He took, yeah, I would say a yeah, a significant risk to go over to the geographically remote centre of Sweden to to coach this fourth fourth tier outfit. But he did so with quite a clever approach to how he did this. So he was used Leeds Beckett to being surrounded by diverse perspectives and good people essentially that he could lean on and you notice as soon as he went to Sweden he tried to do the same thing so he he asked around who's the best sort of local youth coach there's a guy called Bjorn Hamburg who happened to be local by in the island of Frozon which is just next next to Östersunds so this guy was only in his mid-20s he was a very young coach but Potter saw in him the potential um, and wasn't because I think Potter doesn't have that traditional background of he never had that opportunity with a professional team before. He knew that his major downfall was he wasn't given a chance. So he was willing to give someone else a chance because he backed his own abilities and just was repaying the favour in that respect. But 
then he also was quite smart in that he had this really youthful element of it but he also knew that he needed experience so he approached a guy called billy reed who had managed in the top division in scotland very recently to that point and asked him if he would come in as an assistant manager to him in sweden so he was allying he was taking a massive risk to go to sweden but as soon as he was there he was approaching it in a way that he allied all these different perspectives diverse perspectives that would make him have the best possible chance of succeeding um, and also because he had to, he basically had to to think differently than a lot of football managers would and had to take gambles on people that he saw he had a lot of 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 faith in but i think that initial gamble to go over to sweden can't be described as anything other than blind faith because when he got over there for example just practical things that we don't think about they so when he got gets over there they do a training session outside uh, and it quickly is, it starts snowing and it's, it's freezing conditions and ice starts forming on the players' eyelashes. And then there's one moment where a ball hits someone's eyebrow and the icicle is basically attached to his eyelid and the eyelid just goes flying out. So he realises in the first couple of weeks, he's not going to be able to play outdoors. So they then, they then have to move all their training indoors and it's it's... And then he also realizes that he's going to have, if he wants to scout people, he's going to have to drive nine hours there and then nine hours back to scout certain players. So it was it was the definition of blind faith. But I think he had such a faith in his abilities and eventually with the people around him that he made that risk as small as he possibly could, even though it's a massive one. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's interesting about the people he brought in then. So I love the fact he's trying to repay the faith that wasn't placed in him essentially by the way he hired these young coaches. I also read about another, I think it was a player who wasn't going to make it. So that he saw some other kind of talent in the player. Can you just tell us about that? Yeah, so there's a there's now the head of recruitment of Chelsea is a guy called Kyle McCauley. Uh, but at the time when Potter first met him, he was a player playing for, well, he just left a team called Sterling Albion in Scottish third tier. And he was looking to see if he could still continue playing sort of semi-professionally and ask Potter if he could come over and play for him. But Potter was so impressed by the way that he sort of saw the game and his analytical conversations that they had. They said, well, I don't have a playing position for you, but if you want to come and do some scouting work for me, then that, that opportunity is open for you. Obviously, Carl McCauley has a significant talent for, for scouting, which, which Potter had identified because... He's worked out at Erstersons. He moved from a scout to eventually head of recruitment. Then he brought with him him with him to Swansea, then Brighton, and then Chelsea. So yeah, I think Potter at the point when he first met Macaulay just had an ability to kind of think about people differently and not just typecast them as well. He's not he can't fit a player, but he could identify the characters and skills that Carl had just from that conversation that he could think, well, yeah, maybe he won't be a player, but he can fit in a different part. And it was that sort of talent identification which we see in countless times through the players that he brings into us to some separately. He's obviously got an eye for talent, but that talent isn't just technical on the pitch. It's 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 empathy in terms of how he can um see how different skills would translate different roles yeah and it also sounds like he's got a level of self-awareness whereby he knows what his strengths are also possibly knows what his weaknesses are where he needs to fill the gaps and so he's looking for people who can fill those gaps is that true to say or do you think you've got a different view on it 
No, I, I would definitely say, yeah, I mean, he's a very humble, a uh, very humble man in terms of, I think you can also see recently going to the Chelsea job is a pretty horrible thing to do in terms of if you want to bring attention on yourself, you want to get hounded by the media. But he got asked some pretty, I would say, vile questions a lot of the time, but he always, uh, you know, was was humble in the answers that he gave, but also wasn't willing to sacrifice his principles to to say the wrong thing. And yeah, he is the first to give credit to to his coaching team, to his players. He knows that um, he knows that the managerial position is hugely important, but it's, it's a team, and it's also he he knows from his approach at Ustersons that all the little bits need to be right for the big picture to to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just tell us about the story of Austin. So he, he gets there. Where are they in the league at that point? How have they been doing up to that? Yeah, so they've sort of Ustersons was only created in 1996 from a yeah. sort of a merger of three different teams in 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 Ustersons, just for sort of because I imagine most people won't know where Ustersons is. <laughs> yeah. If if it's it's in Sweden for one, but if you think of uh, in the UK, we might think Inverness is remote because right. it is. It is pretty remote, but it's the equivalent of going from London to Inverness and then doing the same journey again into uh, the middle of I don't know, the Orkney Islands. It's basically from Stockholm, right. so Stockholm's in the south of the country, and then Östersunds is the complete um, geographical centre of Sweden, which might sound central, but it's actually uh, really massively remote. Um, I've actually lost my train of thought on the... No, don't worry, we're talking about how they were doing when they first arrived. Yeah, so when they... When when he first arrived, they were in the fourth tier, and he started slowly getting these the backroom staff in place. He started doing some initial uh, scouting, brought in some of the early on players, and they and they quickly within well they didn't actually get promoted in the first year, but from then on they got promoted basically to the top tier Al Svenskin. So he joins in 2011. And by 2016, they're in the top league. So he's, they've gone from fourth, third, second first and then in 2017 they win the Swedish Cup which basically qualifies them to play in Europe in the Europa wow. League um, so yeah it, it it is an incredible ascent in such a short period of time but it's also the stories of the people that he brings in along the way mm. which have been rejected like these aren't he's not buying superstars from all around the world he's buying players that have been we players from basically every single part of the world. He's got players from Comoros, right. Iran, Iraq, and Nigeria, Palestine, uh, Northern England, uh, Sweden. They're, they're, they are the biggest cosmopolitan bunch of players to be playing uh, in Östersunds. And he, yeah, he, and they've all generally been rejected at other levels and often pretty low levels, but he, he and the rest of his team seem to be able to identify talent really well and um, take them and give them this second chance. And you can see his eye for talent and his skill in, in coaching them that all those players that were initially rejected by the likes of uh, Darlington and uh, <laughs> second tier teams in Sweden are now playing at the top level still years and years after after Monster's left. But yeah, it's, it's an incredible ascent from the fourth tier to the first. But I guess in terms of trying to analyse his approach, it sounds like he's like he did with the, the young guy who he converted to a recruitment director. He's seen something in them 
that other people haven't been able to see or they were yeah, what did he do with them, do you think, that made the difference that had them go from being rejected to all these other teams to suddenly be a cohesive team who were successful? Yeah, so a lot of Potter's players have come out and said uh, since that he had an incredible ability to motivate them in terms of he would be very clear with his players that if you if I can get the best out of you, you will get the best out of yourself. And that will mean that us as a team will work well, but it will also mean that in a year's time, you'll get a move to that better team. Right. So, so that's in a way why when he's come to Chelsea and he can't, where do you motivate them to go? No, they can't no go. more stepping stones to go, right? No more stepping stones to go. But, but he he was honest with his players. Uh, he was he treated them as you know as humans. He people that had previously um, difficult times at different clubs. He seemed to get the most out of them. Yeah, and in terms of yeah, what what he did differently, I'd say his biggest skill was seems to be his his empathy and his ability to build relationships with those those players. Yeah, it sounds like yes. Imagine he replicated that. Ossesons, then Swansea, then Brighton. But again, all of those are clubs who potentially could see as they're always going to be kind of mid table. They're not going to be challenging for the kind of yeah trophies really, and so. I guess he's had the opportunity to get clear on the expectations of his players, understand what they want to achieve in their careers, maybe, and then help them kind of realise their success through the success of the team and through his success. Is that is that do you think the approach he was taking essentially? Yeah, definitely. That was um, that was completely the approach that he was taking, and and he was also fair with them. So it and that includes the point where they leave the club. He wouldn't hold players so. Some of his most successful players actually left on the journey on the way up because he was honest with them and he said that he wanted them to move on and progress their careers elsewhere. So um, there's a guy called Lou Barrow who ends up going to Swansea halfway through that ascent. And there's also another guy called Samuel Mansiro who briefly goes away to another Swedish team in the top division. But then he actually comes back to Estesunds, which I think right. is testament to, to Potter and plays a big role in their European journey. But yeah. He was upfront with what he wanted out of them, and then when it came to the point where he had to repay the favour, he was uh, he was honest and um, fair to them. I guess it's, like it's trust essentially what he's building, isn't it? Really between players and, and manager, and but I guess that's all well and good, and it sounds effective with players. But then you know, a football club, there's a certain ego of a football club owner potentially. I don't think you know even Brighton, they're now an established Premier League club, and they're doing better each season, but. For a time, they have been kind of known as a stepping stepping stone club. But I don't think, was there any conflict with the clubs and the ownership of the club, the fact he was positioning his club in that way? And how did he deal with that, if there was? Um, at Ersterson's, I don't mean there was. Uh, and at Brighton, uh, I think his approach has slightly changed. So his approach wasn't just as, a, I think Brighton did sell players, but... It wasn't quite as open as that. But I think you were talking about sort of big personalities and how that uh, uh, sometimes can be difficult. But there was another element to Potter's approach and his team's approach, which was very different to what any other team would do. Right. They had they had this thing called the Culture Academy, which was sort of every term or part of the season, they would do this different culture project. So that included like rapping or they, they did... Uh, Swan Swan Lake, they did singing, 
to audiences of about 200 in Ersesons. And the whole idea was to try and get their players to A, not take themselves too seriously, B, step outside their comfort zone massively so that when they got on the pitch, they weren't really afraid of what happened if things went a bit wrong, if they embarrassed themselves. And it was kind of, you could kind of see those elements of the players. And, and you've got to bear in mind, some players love this. They absolutely love it. And they'll sing, they'll rap, and they want to be the star of the show. Some absolutely hate it. It's like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I think for me, it just wouldn't work. But but they did it fundamentally. And it meant that you could see it on the pitch that they would try these things and they'd keep trying and they'd never be afraid of failure, of missing that pass, missing that shot. They just keep going. And they were just, they developed in, in, in Europe, especially into this really, really resilient team that just kept sort of kept trying. And it meant that, yeah, they'd lose the odd match, but more often than not, they'd have the confidence to keep going again and, and come back, which I think served them really well. But it was this element off the pitch, which I think really led to them having that freedom on the pitch. And obviously that's not something you can do at Brighton or at Chelsea. You can't probably encourage a player who earns £30,000 a week or more to to do go up and sing in front of people it's just not something that works as well but it is that idea of encouraging his players to take risks and and um, be bold and step outside their comfort zone which I think is is really important to his approach as a manager yeah no what an interesting and unique approach especially things like yeah you don't you don't think of footballers around Swan Lake kind of rapping really in some ways so okay interesting but I guess I'm also curious to understand a bit more about what your analysis of maybe mistakes he made. So I guess as his approach, and maybe he's been found out at Chelsea, you could argue to an extent, but his approach seemed to fit very well with clubs at Osterson, Swansea. But then as he's got higher up, uh, be it expectation, has he been found out? Or what, what do you think, what are the mistakes do you think he's made? Yeah, um, I would say the mistakes in a way come with one of his biggest strengths. Um and personally, I don't see them as mistakes. I think at Chelsea, I think at Brighton, I think it's difficult to say that he didn't do a really good job and at Swansea, the same thing. At Chelsea, he, he had he had 35 senior players that he had to manage and he really struggled uh, and they did pretty badly for his period. But it was such a short period that I don't think, he always takes a bit of time to get going at no matter what team it is, whether it's Ersesons, they didn't get promoted in the first year. Whereas at Brighton, they were bobbing along towards the bottom. And then last season, they finished seventh. But it's if he's done anything wrong, it is taking that Chelsea job in the first place because it was such a risk, because it was something that he didn't, uh, he couldn't have foreseen that they'd sign all those players potentially without his blessing, that uh, they had a new owner, that he, he basically couldn't control so many elements of it. Yeah. But I think ultimately... It's another example of him having that calculated risk because yeah. he thought, well, what happens if it doesn't work out at Chelsea? I, yeah, my reputation gets a little bit damaged, but my reputation is at this level where I'm competing with the very best clubs in in sort of Europe. So if I fall a bit short and my reputation no longer is up there, it's probably somewhere down here. But Brighton were probably here, so it's kind of he he's he's aware that yes, it, it's a cal- it's a gamble, it's a calculated gamble, and I think you'll see in the next year or so or 18 months that he will get that job which is probably don't mean to offend Brighton fans but a similar standing to Brighton or slightly elevated despite the fact that Chelsea objectively didn't go very well 
So yeah, if he does anything wrong, maybe he just took a step too naively thinking that he could control things that he couldn't control. But he also did it knowing that the fullback wasn't as detrimental to his career in the long run. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it sounds like throughout his career, especially the way he set himself up in Ostersons, and maybe he did the same in Swansea and Brighton, he was able to surround himself by the people and structures and kind of support mechanisms that would allow him to succeed. Whereas Chelsea is a very different kettle of fish, isn't it? And maybe he didn't have that ability or at least the time in which to do that. So yeah, Chelsea's a, a unique club and they've got a unique, a unique approach to kind of managers there as well. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're starting to wrap up, George. What's, what's been your kind of, what have you learned personally? Because we've kind of broken down Potter's approach in different areas of his career and his management, but what have you kind of learned personally from following his work and kind of writing this book? Um, well, I think um, first and foremost, uh, I think his players that he got the most out of a testament to don't judge a book by pre their previous experiences or learn to get, get to know a person on a personal level. Right. And yeah, people make mistakes in the past. They Things don't work out. You don't know a lot about certain people's backgrounds, but if you can empathise with someone on that personal level and understand for yourself, then the only arbiter that really matters if, is, do you think that, do you personally think that you can get the most out of them? So it's it's not judging people, it's being empathetic. But then it's also, as, as Potter did, it's listening and realising that you're not going to have all the answers, that you need to seek help, you need to surround yourself with diverse perspectives. And that's not just in the sort of, metaphor of potter that isn't just the person the player or the person sitting next to you that's your wider network that's your manager that's your coach that's your that's your advisors so that's all the people back at Leeds Beckett that giving him advice on leadership it's about being endlessly curious and and seeking those perspectives and ultimately that will make you so much more well-rounded that will make you so much more ambitious but ultimately and I think it'll prove in time it will make you resilient because you're um, you have those perspectives that can you can have those conversations and they can take time to to rebuild. But also taking those finally taking those calculated risks right. allows you to learn from those personal experiences. So we didn't like Potter would have never been in this situation if he hadn't have taken that first risk if he hadn't have gone to Sweden and and explored it for himself. But if he if you have that that goal that ambition that personal belief you've got to sometimes take those blind risks and you've got to step outside your comfort zone uh, and ultimately stepping outside your comfort zone might yield worse experiences at points but those worse experiences will probably be experiences that when you have those better experiences you're built by those worst times and so i think yeah it's calculated risk taking it's not judging a book by its cap cover and it's listening to diverse perspectives wherever you can i mean it sounds like you describing your career in itself you took a calculated risk in starting to write about sports and you didn't know where that was going to lead so it sounds like you've i know obviously you did that at the beginning before you even got into your journey with potter but it sounds like you were following in his footsteps maybe without even knowing it in some ways yeah I, yeah to be honest I, you always like like people more the more you can kind of empathize with them personally and like like for me, there couldn't have been a more blind risk than going from a sort of steadily, reasonably like well-paid job to an industry which is notably terribly paid and 
where you're going to have to just sort of slog yourself early on and you're, you're not going to know at the start your earning potential you're not you're going to have to take these blind risks so I think that's kind of why I yeah really empathize with Potter because I kind of and I say it in the book but when I first watched Potter when he was playing for York City he had blonde hair and I kind of just empathized with him just because he was he was the guy on the wing and I played on the wing and I wanted to be like him so it was yeah it's um definitely yeah learn a thing well, that that's why I like him so much because I think I, I empathize with him quite a bit. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, your book, Potter Hotcut and a Desk in East London, so it's available on Amazon now. Yeah, if you're a sports fan, maybe you've got you're in a bit like you were like George was, you're in a nine to five job, which you kind of don't really get much joy from anymore, and you wanna sort of have a story of inspiration and excitement and adventure, definitely check it out and we'll we'll link to it in the show notes. But George, thanks for your time. It's been so fascinating to learn more about and Potter and his backstory um, so thanks for taking the time yeah really appreciate it Alex <laughs>